Welcome back to FYI, the For Your Institution podcast presented by Mongoose. I'm your host, Gil Rogers, and today I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Leanne San Hing. Leanne is on the faculty in the Department of Psychology at the University of Guelph, located in Ontario, Canada. Today, we'll be discussing a number of issues that are very important and specifically around inequity in higher education. But before we hop into our discussion, Leanne, I would love it if you would take a moment to share a little bit about your backstory, your experience, and the work that you're doing for our listeners so that in case they might be meeting you for the first time. So Leanne, I'll kick it over to you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, very happy to be here today and uh, to have the opportunity to have this conversation. Uh, so I'm trained as both a social psychologist and an organizational psychologist. And I teach in the area of industrial organizational psychology. So essentially what we try to do is help organizations, be it schools, the public sector, private sector, uh, be able to run their organizations in the best way possible. And my area of focus and expertise is on uh, really issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So for a long time, I've been studying areas of prejudice and discrimination. I also study how people perceive systems to be most fair and how we can create most fair systems with a lot of emphasis on people's um, concerns about merit and how we can always try to make systems fair and equitable. Um, I teach in this area, I do research in this area, and I also consult and give talks in this area. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. And I know, you know, just being in the higher education community for uh, my entire career, I know these are topics that are at, are at top of mind rather frequently, but always need to be continually talked about and always need to be continually addressed. So I appreciate you bringing your expertise to the conversation today. Um, and spoiler alert for our listeners, we have a lot of these topics queued up for this season of FYI, so I'm very excited uh, that we have Leanne here to help us with kicking off these types of conversations, and I do reserve the right to have you back on as a guest in the future to continue the dialogue. Um, so um, one of the things, you know, as we were chatting um, last week in preparation for today, um, I felt we, you know, be good for us to focus on a few key areas as we as we have this conversation. So, for those who are listening to this discussion via podcast and your preferred podcasting platform, the timestamps for key areas are going to be in the episode notes. So, if you want to skip around and get to a specific point, feel free to do so. We do encourage you to listen to the very end because Leanne's also got some great research opportunities for you to potentially be a part of, um, should you uh, be uh, able and willing to participate. So. Uh, first, what we're going to do is we're going to kick off the conversation and talk specifically around admissions-related issues, because I know a lot of our audience specifically works in traditional undergraduate and graduate admissions, uh, predominantly in the United States, but we do have listeners from around the world, uh, and, the and, and specifically around the extent to which there is bias in these processes. The second part that we're going to talk about as, as part of the conversation is we're going to tackle uh, the issues of campuses believing the processes may be fair and equitable uh, and the difficulties in identifying those problems. It's one of those, you know, everyone else has an issue, but we don't have an issue type of a philosophy. But the reality is we do. Right. And so we want to identify ways that institutions can identify those problems so that they can be addressed and also how we can mitigate bias in the selection and admission process for our campus communities. Uh, and then finally, what we'll round it out is given all of this, and this is a lot to, to unpack, what can universities do uh, with respect to things like 
faculty and staff representation and other issues in order to increase the representation of the most qualified candidates, regardless of their group status, and ensure students that are that all back of all backgrounds are successful at their institution. So Leanne, I will kick it off to you to, to given, given that outline, love for you to get us started and share uh, kind of your, your thoughts specifically starting out with uh, ad admissions related issues um, and, and, and bias in those processes. Thank you. So, you know, one of the issues that I see as um, uh, at the forefront for universities is trying to make sure that they get um, as many uh, student um, applicants that they can get who are qualified, interested in their programs, applying to their programs and being able to get in the strongest cohorts possible. And so, you know, as demographics change and potential um, number of applicants are dwindling, one ways that uh, universities can try to increase their pool is to particularly go after applicants from marginalized backgrounds. Um, lots of universities have such diversity goals already more generally, um, but if you look at the composition of universities, definitely there's, uh, you know, people from racial ethnic um, minority groups are less well represented. If we're looking at STEM fields, women are less, less well represented. And so the question becomes, why do we have such underrepresentation of these groups? So on the one hand, people might think, well, it's because there's a lack of interest. There's a, and other people might think there's a lack of qualified candidates. Other people might think that there's actually discrimination in the system filtering these people out. Um, and so a lot of work has been done in the area of discrimination and selection within workplaces. Much less research has been done in terms of university admissions. Um, However, there are some studies that are suggestive. So first, let me start with the workplace studies. So um, one of the strongest um, ways in which people test whether or not discrimination is occurring is they do audit studies. So they will send mm -hmm. out um, hundreds of resumes, well, thousands even of resumes to hundreds of jobs positions, and they will hold constant the qualifications of the applicant. And all they will do is change the name. Right. So if they're looking at racism, mm -hmm. they will have a white sounding name or maybe, let's say, an Asian or a black sounding name or Hispanic sounding name. Um, some studies, they look at SES based bias. And so instead of changing the name, what they do is they change certain cues in the resume that will um, give a sense of the person's socioeconomic background, like um, whether or not their favorite uh, music is country music or classical music, and if they like playing pickup basketball or if they like playing polo. Right? I like mm -hmm. skiing in the Alps. Um, and, and then other studies, they're looking at gender bias and they'll manipulate if it's, you know, John or, or Jane applying for the job. Mm -hmm. And so yep. they find large amounts of bias occurring against marginalized groups. And these are solid studies because they're field studies. Um, much less research has been done within university admissions, but there are some studies that are suggestive. So for instance, um, in one study, they were looking at graduate admissions and they were looking to see whether or not bias occurs on the basis of candidates' body mass index, right? So is there anti-fatism bias happening in graduate selection? And what they found was that for schools that use in-person interviews, BMI predicts, whether or not students get an offer in admission. Wow. And when they don't have face-to-face -face interviews, BMI does not predict. So pretty telling that um, mm -hmm. candidates who are heavier 
are less likely to be accepted when um, they've been um, experienced a face-to-face -face interview. In another study, what they did was they looked at, um, uh, they had, can, uh, they did like an audit study. They sent emails to um, admissions counselors uh, who were all white um, at, I think over 500 different institutions. And they had the email come from somebody who given their name definitely sounded black. So the person's name was like Jamal or Lakeisha. And they asked about um, applying to the program and whether or not they would be a good fit to the program. So given that they were all black um, can potential candidates, what they varied was whether or not the email indicated that this potential student had strong interests in social justice issues and you know if they were participating in you know anti-bias discrimination type rallies or not and what they found was that um, admissions counselors were much less likely to email back the supposedly black students who had social justice issues um, on the mind and so we can see that if they're less likely to reply to those emails that such forms of bias could also come through in terms of how people then um, assess candidates, especially when we're looking at more holistic admissions decisions, mm -hmm. right? So it's hard for bias to come into play in terms of interpretation of a number of like an SAT score or a GRE score, but I, I will come back to, um, or, or a grade point average, but I'll come back to, you know, what different things in addition to merit those indices um, actually assess. Uh, but if you're looking at hol holistic admissions, so if people are looking at things like standardized test scores, grade point average, but also um, people's personal statements as well as biographical information, what you find is that there's huge halo effects. So how people evaluate one component of the profile has a strong influence on how they then evaluate the other components of the profile. So lots of bias can come into play because mm. we're just humans. Right. And so yep. as humans making judgments of other humans, biases can come into play in terms of how we evaluate others. So, yes, discrimination can occur um, in terms of um, filtering out people from marginalized groups, be it based on, you know, first year, um, sorry, first generation students. Right. So people coming from a lower socioeconomic status background, um, income, race, ethnicity, gender all of these forms of bias can creep into admissions decisions. Got it. And it, I think that that brings us into that. The second point we wanted to talk about was the processes, right? Because I feel like for, for many institutions, it's a, it's, we, we have processes in place to, to mitigate these challenges, but the reality is, is maybe they're partway there, or maybe they're actually not there at all. I know a great example of this is, you know, you mentioned standardized tests. You know, there's a lot of studies out there that indicating that standardized tests are not necessarily a predictor of a student's ability to actually be successful at the college level. What it, it, what it can be is an indicator of that student's access to test prep and the, you know, the, uh, there's correlation with scores and zip code, right? And zip code is a proxy for income. And so there's, you know, those, those and it, we've, we've made great strides, in, in, particularly in the U.S. around test optional admissions and, and that part of the process, but there's obviously probably still more work to be done. And I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on, on that ball of wax when it comes to, to that part of the conversation and others when, when it comes to our processes. 
Yeah, so um, I can speak to the issue of uh, SAT scores specifically, but then also more generally. So I'll start with the more general. Yeah. Yep. Um, which is that it's extremely difficult for organizations to identify the biases within their own systems. And that's because organizations, by and large, are doing their best. Right. So it's I don't think that universities are out there saying, let's be discriminatory. Right. No, they're saying we need to eliminate discrimination. Yeah. Um, people who are making decisions are getting anti-bias training. Um, people are going through um, their criteria, trying to make sure that they're as fair as possible. And so definitely within um, systems that are designed to be meritocratic, it actually is really hard to identify the biases that creep in. Even as individuals, it's hard for us to identify our biases. And so part of this is about, um, you know, how we idealize our systems to be versus how they operate in reality. And so within the field of social psychology, there's a theory called system justification theory, which um, provides lots of different ways of showing that when people belong to systems, they are um, identified with that system and they're very motivated to perceive the system as fair and just. And so it becomes very hard for them to identify the problems within it. And so, for instance, um, people who do interviews, people love their own process of doing interviews and they mm -hmm. feel like their interviews are very valid, right? They get this gut instinct after yep. having done my interview, asking my questions, that I can like determine who the best candidates are. In reality, um, unstructured interviews have a lot of bias um, where uh, groups who are the same as the interviewer do better on the interview than interviewees who belong to other groups. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the interviews that people feel less comfortable with, structured interviews where the exact same questions are asked of all candidates, um, and people are evaluated against a very clear grading rubric. And it's an incredibly uncomfortable social interaction because you're trying to take all cues of responding out of it. Yep. Those are actually the processes that can mitigate bias. Um, so yeah, I would say that organizations, if you think that you don't have to have that you don't have problems of bias and discrimination, that it's worth looking again and potentially you need an outside perspective in order to be able to go over your systems to see which abide by best practices in terms of reducing bias. So back to the issue of SAT scores, yep. um, they do predict. So, so um, GPA is the best predictor of mm -hmm. um, student success and performance. Um, SAT scores are a, a second very, very good predictor but you're right, they are confounded with socioeconomic status. So kids from well-educated families with higher income parents, um, they do better on SAT scores in part because as you mentioned, right, they get all the test prep happening, mm -hmm. right? And they, they learn um, how to game the system, but in part because they are buying into better neighborhoods with better schools and they are actually getting the better education. Yep. And so um, part of the problem is well beyond what universities can attend to, right? So we need systems level change so that everybody has got equal opportunity to get quality education to help set them up for university. Um, and so that's why it's the case that even if universities were able to eliminate any form of bias or discrimination happening within their systems, even if they were to abide by all of the best practices in terms of their systems, 
we still wouldn't see equal representation of all groups within universities because we live in an unequal society. So given the inequalities that exist within our society, not everybody has equal opportunity and therefore the best candidates using the you know, most clear criteria we currently have will not score the highest. And therefore they will not be the ones selected. Even if all you do as your selection system is just start at the top and look at GPA and go down to the number of applicants that you absolutely need. Just looking at grade point average will not um, get you. So you, know, you, you might think that we'll get rid of any kind of rater bias, um, but it will not get you a more diverse student population because um, uh, because of all of the inequalities that exist before yep. people submit their yeah. applications to university. Yeah, and and as a as a former admissions counselor, I can say that that's why the school profile is so important. That's why knowing the 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 school is so important. But even then, there's you're opening up a window for for there to be bias in the process because of that counselor's interactions with the students at that school right and so there's a there it's not a simple solution it's not a quick fix um and it's not i feel like it's one of those what you're what you're helping us to understand is that it's not no single institution is going to solve this challenge it's got to be a collective approach to addressing the systemic issues that are in play because yeah, dropping S, dropping standardized test scores from your admission criteria feels like a good decision when you're trying to address those challenges and you look at it from the lens of it being a proxy for zip code, et cetera. But it's it doesn't solve the the underlying problem of uh, of of the, of the access to education at the high school level. Designed exclusively for higher ed by higher ed professionals, Cadence Chat helps you engage your audiences with the perfect balance of AI and personal connection. Your website visitors can't find answers quickly, so they leave. We leverage proactive outreach and anticipate common roadblocks, knowing the most significant decisions often start with the smallest conversations. Our powerful AI ensures instant support and is smart enough to know exactly when to hand off to a staff member. If nobody is available, it allows for easy follow-up. Learn more at mongooseresearch.com. So I think to, the, to that point, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how, how we mitigate bias in the selection and admission process, understanding that everything that we do at an individual institution is probably not going to solve the world's problems, right? I'd love to kind of throw that on your plate and see what you can, you can help us with. Yeah. So, um, I think, so, um, so getting a little bit distracted because I do want to address the pipeline issue. So universities can do things to help with the pipeline issue. So if I think about my own institution, um, we have, um, STEM camps in the summer. Mm-hmm. And some of those um, camps are run specifically for girls, like in the ages where girls are most likely to, you know, move away from and start to disengage from math and science. And so uh, there's, you know, universities can partner with high schools in order to promote um, uh, STEM. They can work with uh schools, particularly from, you know, more disadvantaged neighborhoods in order to help to build the capacity for students in order to um, succeed. Okay. But let's say instead um, we're talking about the applicants that come in. So the question is, so 
you know, I, I tackle this issue myself at a very personal level when I'm looking at applicants for my lab, right? Applicants for graduate school. Mm-hmm. So yes, I want diversity in my in my applicants. Yes, I want to um, have a fair lab. Yes, I want to contribute. You know, I, I'm a social justice researcher. I want to contribute um, to, you know, helping to promote the pathways to success for people mm-hmm. from marginalized backgrounds. Um, but do I actually want to work with students who are less qualified, who are less able, who are going to be less hardworking, who aren't going to be as successful? And absolutely, I don't. And so the question becomes, you know, in trying to promote diversity um, in in who you accept, are you actually lowering your standards? And I would argue that no, we're not, because all of those forms of bias that I was talking about in terms of what potential selection um, officers, decision makers might engage in, all of those forms of bias existed before that. So a very sad area of research um, has been done um, with high school teachers and grade school teachers and looking at all of the biases that they enact in terms of their perceptions of how to stream students um, and what students' capabilities are. They've done uh, like basic experimental studies where they manipulate the name of the essay and they look at how the the, uh, apparent race of the essay writer affects real Mm -hmm. teachers' gradings um, of the paper and the quality of, of the submission. Um, and their perceptions of how SES dictates whether or not this student, you know, should go off on a path, you know, for for university um, or a more trades path. Um, and so, in thinking that um, everybody has got um, their true potential, right? So true merit, untapped potential versus their record. What I would argue is that it's in university's interest to go for students whose true potential is the highest, right? And so because of the inequalities that exist within society, somebody's true potential might look very different from their academic record. And so it becomes a question of how do we try to get at that true potential? Yep. And so um, one way to try to do this is to look at how people... Um, Scores on preparatory tests is a really good um, predictor of success within college as well. And so how do we try to create a more equal playing field, give everybody the opportunity that they would need in order to get the base level of skills um, that are required, get people onto um, even ground to then see who your best candidates are, to see who your best students are. And so I would say that, um, so within the workplace, for instance, one thing that people do is they um, give a job sample test. Okay, so whatever the task is that people have to do, you test them on that. But the, the problem becomes, well, maybe people haven't all had equal access to that experience in the past. So what they found is that even with a job sample, so job sample test is a a much less biased indicator um, of performance, but groups will still perform differently because of differential past experience. If you give everybody training and an opportunity to perform the job sample test first and then give the test job sample test, now you can actually eliminate group differences. And Mm -hmm. so I think that universities need to think about ways to tap into potential to learn potential to grow, potential to perform, given a good learning environment, which I would imagine every university aims to do. And I I would just say that I feel like the 
then the challenge comes into when they're when they're under-resourced as a staff and they're under pressures to hit enrollment targets, how how much of this, how much of that is realistic for many for many institutions. For a lot, it will be, but and especially if we put you know the student at the core of what we want to what we're focusing on and we we if we want to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to investing our time and effort into equitable processes. Uh, but how I guess with all of that in mind, um, what are are there other uh, any other tips or thoughts or suggestions that you have for institutions to you know address these issues and you know it increase the representation of the most qualified candidates regardless of their status, but ensuring that students from all backgrounds are successful. Um, I know you've, you've mentioned a few, but I, I'd love for you to kind of reinforce and add any other thoughts that you might have that might be helpful. Yeah, so um, a potentially contentious solution, but uh, very easy to implement um, is affirmative action based on socioeconomic status. And so um, given that we know that um, standardized test scores are conflated with socioeconomic status, then if you hold as a philosophy that, or as a starting point, an assumption that people, regardless of their background, have the potential to learn and grow and develop, given a proper um, training environment, then you can select students based on a particular um, uh, proportion of people from different income deciles and make sure that you're selecting the top students from each of those income deciles or quartiles, however you wanna you know, do your math. Um, and then make sure that you, because you will know that the students coming from the lower um, income deciles or quartiles will probably have received worse education along the way. They, they won't have, so I think about my own kids, right? So I've got a 10 year old and a 13 year old my one time I came home and they had like made little paper briefcases up. And, mm -hmm. and I, so I looked at them and I figured they were playing work and I said, what are you playing? And they said, chair and Dean. <laughs> so that's how my kids play work, right? <laughs> so this is, this is the environment that they're growing up in. My 13 year old, he's already talking about like the lab that he plans to have someday. Like, he, he, he's got it made for his future because he knows the system. He knows the experiences that yep. we need. Yep. And so what I would argue is that universities have to both, one, provide either bridge um, classes from that year between high school and um, college so that students can get the background knowledge that they need um, or design their curriculum in a way so that first year courses really help to build um, the basic skills um, that are gonna be required to go through um, and be successful for the rest of the program. And so we did this um, process within our uh, program a number of years ago when we were going through our institutional quality assurance process. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just completely rethought our first year. And so we've got, so I'm a psychology professor in many institutions, it's the biggest major um, happening. And so in our first year, we've got our stats course, we've got our content course, and then we have an entire course that's foundational skills for psychology, where students are really focusing on learning how to write, 
learning how to um, have critical thinking around um, media, learning how to reference, learning what you know solid evidence consists of. And so trying to give the skills so that students understand um, the skills, try to get everybody onto an equal playing field so that all of our students have the skills that they that is going to be required for them to then move on. Um, another thing that institutions can do, so my son is set up because he knows the hidden curriculum. He knows that he needs to get into labs. He knows that he needs to volunteer. Mm -hmm. He knows that he needs to, um, you know, read a professor's papers to um, figure out what kind of research he's interested in. And so what universities need to do is make the hidden curriculum very explicit and clear for their students so that those yep. From yep. backgrounds aren't um, at such an advantage compared with others. And then finally, what I would say is that um, we need to create um, institutions where there's a more friendly diversity climate. Because even if you get students from marginalized backgrounds, the question becomes, do they do well? Do they thrive? Um, do they stay? Do they drop out, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, you can't go from being a predominantly white institution with predominantly white staff, predominantly white professors, um, bring in students from different backgrounds um, who will have additional challenges um, because some of them are gonna be very well set up for success um, mm -hmm. given their yep. past experiences, but some of them, especially if let's say you were to select um, uh, with socioeconomic status um, backgrounds in mind, um, won't have had those experiences. You've got to create a culture within your institution where people feel um, supported, where people feel included, and where people can see themselves represented among those who they are looking up to. Yep. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's similar. I've been prior roles, I've worked in international recruitment, and it's the same challenge when you bring in students from China or South Korea or you know, uh, whatever, name the, name the market. If you don't have infrastructure in place and faculty that can support and a community that will actually embrace and support that population, then you're not going to get the next class because it's going to it's going to impact your marketability as an institution amongst many other things, obviously, uh, within that population, right? And so you, you can't just do the marketing to get them there and do the programs to get them there. You also have to have the processes to support them and help them to feel included as a part of the community once they are. So um, these these are all amazing points, and like I said, the foundation of a of a much larger conversation. Um, that I, that we need to continue to have and will continue to have all season on FYI. Um, I want to take a moment to first thank you so much for your, your your thoughtful commentary on these critical issues, and also as we wrap, I want to give you an opportunity to share some of the work that you're working on next, and how our listeners may be able to participate in some of the work that you're doing to to address some of these issues on their campus. Thank you. So um, in my most recent research, we're looking at um, when people are asked to play the role of a university admissions officer, how cues about applicants' socioeconomic status affects people's evaluations of how strong the student is, how well the student would fit within um, the university, and whether or not the student should be granted admission. And we find um, big effects of um, 
the socioeconomic status of the, of the student. And this is despite the fact that um, except for cues about socioeconomic status, the qualifications are held constant, the GPA is held constant, relevant volunteer and work experience is held constant. And so um, given this research, what we would like to be able to do is to start to partner with university admissions offices to look at um, potential for bias and discrimination within their systems. But more importantly, um, I would say to develop workshops to help to teach people how to look at um, holistic um, applications in a way that will take into consideration um, the situation that people are coming from. So how can we assess people's um, potential as opposed to their track record that may, might be more contaminated with socioeconomic status? And for our listeners, we will provide details in the speaker in, in the notes uh, for the podcast, as well as uh, on the Mongoose LinkedIn page uh, for how to get in touch with Leanne and how to participate. Uh, so thank you again so much for, for being a part of this conversation. We appreciate your time. Any closing words and remarks for our audience before we, we let them go today? Um, yeah, so I guess I would say that a lot of this work um, is tough work and contentious mm -hmm. um, and potentially divisive uh, within a university campus. And so to be able to steer universities uh, through this work effectively, you really need leaders who are um, engaged, um, who understand issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion well, and who lead in a way to promote these goals. And so um, I would say that leaders need to really step up and think about how to develop their own ways of leading institutions through these processes. That is a great way to round us out and uh, take us through the rest of, the se of this season of FYI. Leanne, thank you so much again for your time today. And thank you to our listeners. And we will see you next time. Thank you.